Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello, I'm Michael Calori. I'm an editor here at Wired, and you are listening to the Gadget Lab podcast. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Ariel Pardes. Hello. And Lauren Good. Hello. This is the podcast where we take you through the top tech topics of the week and break down the gadgets, the apps, and the services that you need to know about. But it's not just about gadgets. It's about our relationship with them and how they impact our lives. And sometimes this podcast is about how your tech consumption is impacting the environment or your consumption in general, which is a very real thing. And we are going to dive into on today's show. That's right. This week, Wired writer Adam Rogers is joining us to talk about climate change and how it impacts you personally, because it does. <laughs> really, it does. Most recently, Adam has written about a 1,600-page governmental report on climate change, as well as a British medical journal's annual accounting of how climate change impacts public health. But first, we're going to go through this week's top news, including more congressional hearings for tech execs, which it turns out aren't nearly as consequential as, you know, saving the planet. (laughs) That is right. Okay, on Tuesday, Google CEO Sundar Pichai testified before the House Judiciary Committee in a hearing that was supposed to be focused on transparency, data collection, and the filtering of information. Of course, uh, Sundar Pichai is not the first tech CEO to be in the congressional hot seat this year. Earlier this year, we heard from Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, Jack Dorsey. They've all been questioned in Washington this year. But Pachai could avoid it no longer, even though Google didn't send anybody in September during hearing. And this Tuesday's hearing ended up being a missed opportunity, something that Wired writer Issy Lepowski points out in her story. So Issy called this a rhetorical tennis match, which I'm not quite sure that that is necessarily different from other congressional hearings. Um, (laughs) But uh, what happened was it was three and a half hours of members of the committee either challenging Pachai with claims that the company buries conservative websites in Google search results, and those claims were coming largely from Republicans, 
or strangely carrying water for Pachai, like when Ted Lieu, who's a Democratic representative from California, told his Republican colleagues that if they didn't want bad news to surface about them, then they just not do bad things, which um, kind of absolves Google of any responsibility around how its search algorithm works. So yeah, not a lot of uh, questions really clearly answered. It even turned into something of a geek squad visit when Republican Steve King began to lambast Sundar Pichai about some type of content that popped up on his granddaughter's iPhone, forcing Pichai to explain that Google doesn't make iPhones. <laughs> I wish I could tell you I was kidding, and I wish I could tell you that there was groundbreaking news from this hearing, but there really wasn't. You should just be aware that it happened. Those hearings are so frustrating. Yeah, they are. They are because, and Issy does a good job of pointing this out, you can't singularly blame uh, our you know, our representatives for not knowing everything about tech and asking bad questions and that sort of thing. Because I think it should be an opportunity for our representatives to ask these CEOs really important questions. Um, But they do ask some pretty bad questions, or at least questions that maybe you should know the answer to already. And therefore, the time is not used efficiently. And therefore, we're not getting straightforward answers from someone like Sundar Pichai on what Google's long-term plans are for operating a search engine in China, which is a really big deal, and which some representatives did ask him about. But we kind of got the same vague answers from from uh, Pachai about what's known as Project Dragonfly. You know, um, well, we have no plans to do this in China, or right now we're not doing this, which is a lot of what we've heard, you know, it's been told to journalists in recent months as well. So um, there were missed opportunities. I think Issy put it best, and she has a great story on it on Wired, so go check that out. Mm-hmm. Our next news item is about chips. Uh, In the world of computer chips, one long-held belief has always been that smaller is better. Well, now it might be proving true that taller is better. This week, chip giant Intel demonstrated its new 3D packaging technology called Foveros. That's F-O-V-E-R-O-S. Foveros. I will love you, Foveros and Overos. I thought it sounded like one of the names of one of the cities in uh, Game of Thrones. (laughs) So this new method of making processors lets Intel stack logic chips on top of each other. Um, The technique of building a chip vertically has been used previously on memory chips, but Intel is going to be the first to bring 3D stacking to CPUs, to graphics chips, and to AI processors. This is the result of years of research and how Intel has arrived at a solution of stacking up chips just like Lego bricks. The company can make all kinds of special chips with custom applications. So if you want to build a processor that has a 5G radio on it and a second processor that's just there for processing AI algorithms, then you can do that using the Foveros system. Uh, The real breakthrough here is not just stacking bits of silicon, it's stacking capabilities. So we've seen a lot of um, news, and we've written a lot of news lately about this move towards a 7 nanometer Mm. processing design, right, for ultra-efficient chips. How is this different from that? So, like, you know, everybody's been trying to make their chips smaller and smaller and smaller, Mm -hmm. make them more efficient for space. Mm -hmm. Um, Intel is still using a 10 nanometer process, which is, like, sort of last generation and... Um, the companies that have been moving towards seven millimeter chips have been touting that as, you know, the next, the the smaller is definitely the better thing to do. Um, for Intel, they have traditionally been behind the mobile manufacturers. They kind of got left behind when everybody went from desktop processing to mobile processing. So, uh, in a way this is them sort of reclaiming their space there. 
Um, their big competitors now are not necessarily the companies that are making really small chips for mobile. They're companies like Google and Apple and Facebook that are making their own custom chips to put in their data centers. So while there are mobile applications, of course, for the Foveros process, um, I really think that you know they're going to see much more benefit when they start looking at like specialty applications that you build a custom server for. Mm-hmm. By the way, Foveros to me just sounds like coffee. Like, start your morning with Foveros. <laughs> a warm cup of Foveros. Mm-hmm. Well, as I always say, Foveros before Broveros. And <laughs> this week, everyone's favorite tech Broveros, Elon Musk, is in the news again. Um, yes, that's right. Uh, Elon Musk appeared on 60 Minutes on Sunday to demonstrate a new Tesla feature called Navigate on Autopilot. This is a feature that lets Teslas change lanes or merge while they're on autopilot. And on 60 Minutes, you can see Elon sort of folding his arms, lifting his foot off the pedals um, inside a Tesla, giving his best look ma, no hands, to show that the car is in effect driving itself. Which, of course, is not true. Uh, Teslas cannot drive themselves, not yet anyway, not completely, um, which makes this demo at best pretty misleading and at worst potentially very dangerous. Autopilot is obviously a very sophisticated feature, but not enough that drivers can take their hands off the wheel or stop paying absolute attention to the road. Um, And that's not just a precaution. Tesla has already been implicated in several deaths and accidents resulting from its autopilot features. Basically, people think the car can do more than it can do. They stop paying attention. um, Then it crashes. And Tesla's response in the past has just been that, you know, this is driver's faults. Um... But of course, when you see Elon Musk doing demos like this, you get the impression that you don't have to have your hands on the wheel or your foot on the pedal or your eyes on the road because you can be showing off to a television executive about how the car drives itself. So yet again, Elon is facing flack from people who suggest that he is recklessly promoting features that don't really exist um, and suggesting that we can be anything less than absolutely vigilant when we're driving. Did he tweet while he was on 60 Minutes? <laughs> while he was using um, auto, Navigate on autopilot? That's a great question. No, he did not. But uh, <laughs> surely that's that's the only reason he has been tweeting in the car in the past, right? Is that the car is just driving itself. Yes. I think that the Tesla thing is interesting. One of our transportation writers, Jack Stewart, wrote an interesting piece this week about Elon's segment in which he pointed out that there's a lot of confusion from consumers about what a Tesla can do. And this idea that we are barreling toward this future of self-driving cars, I think can be a little misleading sometimes when people think that like, I have a Tesla, I have a self-driving car. And like, no, you do not. <laughs> like, you have, a, you have a car with some incredible software in it um, that does some incredible things, but like you do not have an autonomous vehicle. And if you think that, then you're bound to crash into something. Mm-hmm. And people have. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, the first time that I sat in one of those cars in the driver's seat behind the wheel, and d- let it do the thing where it takes care of a traffic jam for you, basically stays in the lane and stays a safe distance from the car in front of you. I was like kind of like my heart rate was mm-hmm. up and I was looking around and I kept wanting to touch the wheel. And it was it was, you know, you have to touch the wheel every once in a while, but it kept wanting to take the wheel. Mm-hmm. And it was um, it was very stressful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's, that's just my personal anecdote. Be- being being stressed is actually like. I mean, not the ideal outcome, but I think it's better that you feel that way. Like Jack describes this in his piece as well. Like he tries out the new feature and he says, my hands are on the wheel the whole time because it's a new feature and you don't know if it's going to work. 
But I think the problem is that eventually people get used to it and they say it does work. The car is amazing. Like these features are incredible and therefore I don't have to have my hand on the wheel at all. And, and they're that's, just like watching that's Netflix. when you get in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's still more news to come probably this week because we are recording this right now on Wednesday, December 12th. What's today? The 12th. The, the 12th, December 12th. So uh, if something big happens tomorrow, you're not going to hear about it right now in this segment. But uh, you should know that if something big does happen, we'll talk about it next week. And that's all the news we have for now. Let's go to our interview with Adam Rogers. Rogers is a man who needs no introduction. He's joined us in the newsroom today. He's our deputy editor here at Wired. Uh, he covers science, climate change, alcohol, among many other things. Adam, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I definitely need an introduction, especially that one. I'll take it. Yeah. Science, climate change, and alcohol. That's that's my bookshelf right there. <laughs> so you've been very busy lately writing about climate change, not only because the recent fires in California sparked a lot of conversation about uh, what is going on um, with climate change, but also there have been some pretty significant reports released uh, recently. Um, one of the most recent stories you wrote was headlined that the climate apocalypse is happening right now. But one of the things we were chatting about earlier is how do you actually recognize or acknowledge what you call a slow apocalypse? I mean, what ha what's happening right now that sort of makes it deserving of that description? It's weird, isn't it, that as a, as a science fiction nerd who, who used to stay up quite late watching very cheaply produced post-apocalyptic movies filmed out in the desert of California, um, you always kind of wonder, like, well... That's it, it already happened. The apocalypse is behind them. Like, what does it look like when they're on the way there? And when I was a kid, it, there was a, sort of a tacit assumption there had been a nuclear war. That was the thing that we would think like, oh, well, that's what happened before this movie started. And now you sort of don't anymore. Now you assume that everybody just got real hot and ran out of water. Um, there was a little bit of that. I'm, I'm, I'm veering off. I promise I'll come back around to the answer. But there, there was a little of that in like in, in the in the last Mad Max movie, you know, in Fury Road. Like all those other Mad Max movies had clearly been about there was an atomic bomb dropped and then this is what happened. And then in that one, it was not. There had been a climate apocalypse before that. Like they retconned the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And and I feel like now, like well, if you want to know what it looks like when you're ramping up, you can just look around. <laughs> um, and that's not all. I, I say that to be intentionally terrifying, but also to say, like, we, we can stop. Like, you can still you can still deal with this. There's still time to deal with it. But increasingly, the people who study climate and who study the consequences of climate change and who study the kind of first-order effects that we're starting to see will say, like, now's the time to stop. Like, this is what we were warning you about 20 years ago. It's what we were warning about 30 years ago. It's what the people who first came up with the, the idea that this was possibly a consequence were warning us about 100 years ago. This is stuff that until very recently, and I even remember this, even within my career as a journalist, they would say, researchers, scientists would say, this is what we think it's going to look like if we don't do something now. And they would get dismissed in all of the ways that those people have been dismissed for decades. No, your, your models aren't good enough because your computers aren't right. You're taking the um, the worst case scenario and not assuming best case scenarios, you are accepting, you're, you're, you're making money off these claims somehow, mm -hmm. like all the same stuff that kind of the right and, you know, oil companies um, t typically will say about these folks, would say that then. Um, and when they would say, you know, the scientists would be very um, cautious, as they rightly are, they would say, well, 
gosh, I mean, yeah, I guess there is some uncertainty built into these um, these claims that we're making. You know, we don't make predictions. They're not fortune tellers. They're saying like, well, there's a certain probabilities and there's certain margins of error. And you say all that kind of stuff. And to somebody who um, is sort of, sort of used to being lied to by people in power, they hear that and they're like, oh, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, now you can look up and you can say, gosh, you know, 10 years ago or whatever it was, less maybe these all these researchers said, we, we don't know if there are going to be more Atlantic hurricanes, but we know they're going to be more intense and they're going to intensify more rapidly. They're going to get close to shore and they're going to ramp up to Cat 5. And we saw that happen a bunch in the last two hurricane seasons. You had people who study wildfires, in the, not just in the Southwest, um, in the continental United States, but up and down the kind of forests, the boreal forests of North America, and also in the Southeast where they have kind of a fire culture as well, saying, look, we don't know if they're going to be more, but they're going to cover more ground and they're going to happen more quickly or... They're going to change where they are. You know, it's not just going to be a Southern California thing. We're going to see more of them in Northern California, for example. Well, here we are. Mm-hmm. You have people who study disease saying, gosh, all the diseases that are vectored in by mosquitoes, they're going to spread to more places. It's not just going to be, you know, they used to call them tropical diseases. Mm-hmm. And even the, the researchers who study those, like, they don't like to use that terminology anymore, not only because it's, you know, maybe a little racist, but also because, like, they ain't just tropical. Like, the tropics are expanding, you know, diseases that, that people would have said, well, that's something that you might see in a sort of a South American environment, like, well, no, no, Florida. Mm-hmm. So so what earlier people might have been able to poke holes through or say, well, that's just people, that's just scientists guessing. Yeah. Now we actually, we can look back, hindsight's perfect, right? And say, well, these things have actually happened. Yeah, and you can you can go to reports like the the IPCC reports, the big international ones. They would say, if, if things are really bad, this is what we expect to happen in the next 10 years. Like, that was 10 years ago, here we are, it's all happening. We're on this track, that's what they, it's, it is telling, I think, that researchers use interchangeably the terms worst case scenario and business as usual. Like those are the, that's, those are those, they call that the same thing, that's where we are. It's like, this is it, this is it, this is the worst case, this is it. So, you know, one of the, one of the reports that you've cited in your reporting um, over this past couple of weeks uh, said, had this really interesting data point in it, it said that Around 70 to 75 percent of the people who responded to a survey about climate change felt that climate change was happening on this planet. But a much lower percent, like around 40, 45 percent of those people felt as though they could feel the effects themselves. It's fascinating, right? That, yeah. that was amazing to me. And that's in the, the um, Yale runs a program on climate change communication. And so they did it's a very good survey. Tons of people. Um, and, and, and that was, uh, that was really striking to me that I read a, a staff writer at the New Yorker had a, a tweet thread about this where he was saying, you know, denialism is not really the problem anymore. There are still some people who deny this. Some of them are in power. Some of them are people who don't know better, but they're, that's, that's not, it's a small number, sort of everyone I'm making air quotes, even though this is not a visual medium, everyone, um, <laughs> you know, acknowledges like this is a problem, but where they, what they don't say is like, well, it's not my problem yet, but of course it is. There, there's not a person in the United States who isn't seeing some edge effect or some first effect or some second, second effect of climate change. It's just difficult to see it because they're, they're so attenuated in some cases that it's like, well, it's just been this way your whole life. If you are 25 years old right now, it's been this way your whole life. I'm almost 48. It hasn't been this way my whole life. Things have, I have seen things change. Like the, the weather, not just the climate, like the weather has changed. You know, it's not as cold in San Francisco. Um, and like, that's it right there. Guys, that's it. Hi. Mm-hmm. Um, and what people say is, no, you know, those things are, those are, those vary across time. It's very difficult to say. Like, yes, all that is true. 
the uncertainties are still there. This is still science. There's always a margin. But like, no, you know, we, we got to be paying attention to that stuff. Um, and I think, you know, it's also, it also may be the case that we tend to be in the aggregate a wealthier country. We are wealthier people in the United States. Certainly there are people in the United States who are poor, but, um, but by and large, like, and also the kind of the stories that we tell about ourselves are the stories of richer people. But I think you can't deny, for example, that like the people who were in this so-called migrant caravan that was so much in the in the news getting spun up for because of fears of immigration in the in the midterm elections, a lot of what they're uh, trying to get away from are consequences of climate change in in their homes where they're coming from. A lot of wars overseas have like a sort of climate if they're related to like who has enough food that's related to climate these are changes that you can trace back to at least to some extent now all, all this stuff including the fires here and the kind of damage that a hurricane does are exacerbated by the way human beings live on the planet we build houses in places that we didn't used to those houses are built in a certain way the, the, the kind of urban form um, means that we're closer to where fires always have been in the past like all that stuff is true too you know it's just that one little bit of extra bad that comes from some amount of a warming climate. Right, and you mentioned in one of your stories that it often is the poor um, or the elderly or children or people of color who are disproportionately impacted by these kinds of changes. Explain that a little bit. Well, yeah, I'm pausing because I'm trying to de decide how much of a revolutionary I want to try to sound like here, <laughs> <laughs> like asking people to man the battlements. I don't know that that's... Um, necessarily what I want to be doing. But, uh, but well, I, Emily Dreyfus, yeah. one of our other colleagues, went to TEDx, was it TED Women? TED, yeah, TEDx, TEDx, Women. TEDx Women recently, and there was a speaker there she wrote about who said women are disproportionately affected by climate change as well. I, I, I'm, I'm sure that is the case. It is possible for um, people of means to move away from the coast and to have have access to the kind of medical care that takes care of you if you have asthma or if you get exposed to a mosquito vectored disease it's possible for people to who have means uh, if their houses burn down they have insurance and they can rebuild maybe in the same place or they can go to another house um, people who who only have that place to live and it's only on a coast that's threatened by sea level rise um, don't have those kind of options um, it's always been true that the parts of our cities that were the most polluted or the most exposed to other kinds of dangers are also the parts where the poorest people live. Um, those are also parts that are disproportionately affected by when climate change sort of makes those conditions worse. And that's sort of what I mean by the way that we build our the human environment, the built environment, already has places that are problematic. Climate makes those worse first. Then it comes for everybody. You know, but it's the it's the folks who can't afford to build sort of literal or metaphoric walls um, to protect themselves uh, who get it first. Adam, you've described the consequences of climate change in many of your stories as uh, nothing short of apocalyptic, um, which I, I don't think is an overstatement. And many of the reports that you've covered and that we've covered at Wired um, do describe effects that are like literally life-changing for millions of people. Our cover story this month is about the effects of glacial melting and, and the way that this will change people's lives um, in ways that cannot be reversed. But I think when we talk about this stuff, it often becomes so lofty and 
almost abstract to the everyday person sitting at their desk that I wonder what do we do? Like, what is the thing that a person reading your stories or those of us who are sitting in the Wired office listening to you talk about this stuff, like what is the thing that we do first and maybe what's the thing that we try and do over the coming year? That, um, that's the key question. And it's important, I, I'm really glad you're asking me that now because it's important for me to keep it in mind too while I'm writing. Um, because I, I tend to um, lapse into you know, Fury Road talk and that's not really productive. And, I, and there are people who are much more expert than I in, in climate communication. Like, I'm not trying to do that, right? I'm just, I'm covering the news, you know. But, like, there are people whose job it is to communicate these dangers to people in ways that have an impact. Um, who I think probably would say, like, please stop saying Mad Max. You know, like, that's not really, <laughs> like, you're not fixing it. And I'm, I'm conscious of that, too, especially because I, I feel maybe more, I mean, I've always felt pretty mission-driven as a journalist. But I feel maybe more than I have, like, this is it. This is the story. You know, like this is the story we have to be telling. And um, so I think part of that is that I certainly grew up with like this personal responsibility narrative about the environment um, and drive less is definitely part of that. But like, you know, and recycle and like, you know, don't I don't go vegan, go vegan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and it is true. Like reducing meat consumption, reducing meat consumption would yeah. do a lot for dealing with. Even if you don't it. go totally vegan. Right. That it, That's true. <laughs> and everybody going vegan would reduce a lot of. Greenhouse gas emissions mm-hmm. and driving less wood. And all those things are true. Driving food around the country less. Sure. Right. Um, I mean, there are, th- but, but, but the, but it is not, but climate change is not any one of the, like the people sitting in the podcast studio right now's individual fault. There are things that we could all do less of, but there are things that need to have to happen at, that have to happen at a, at a policy level and at a societal level that make it possible for us to make those changes in our lives. Right. Um, an example of that is uh, in California right now, and a lot of places in the country, but in California right now, a big fight is about housing. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the places that uh, that those clashes about whether cities should be denser and build higher and um, and build you know four units where there would only be one single family home are in places like the Bay Area in, in San Francisco and in Berkeley, for example. And these are cities that are like calling them blue insults blue like these cities are deeply indigo right in every progress in every socially progressive sense but then when you go to them go to cities in terms of city policy and say in the past okay well so we need to like upzone the single family housing areas and build more densely the arguments are like oh but there'll be shadows and oh but that's not you mm-hmm. know we don't have Congestion, the resources and congested parking it'll, it'll screw up parking things yeah but every mm-hmm. piece of research on how cities are built says that denser cities emit less carbon and you don't have to drive as much in those cities, right? The, mm-hmm. you, you live near transit and you can take BART or you can ride a scooter you know, to, to your office instead of... Oh, God, please don't. Well, okay. <laughs> but so here's the thing about the, like, the scooters, which we've covered extensively, both in very funny and very serious ways here at Wired, right? But you want people riding scooters. <laughs> you, you want them not in cars. And the way you keep people out of cars is not by telling them drive less. Especially, again, if you are... If you're, poor and you have to live so far away from your off from where you work right right because there's no housing near it right so if you're commuting two hours yeah. what are your options and, and, and public like, transit might make that four hours exactly and so you need to offer better you know last mile solutions and all that right or you need to build housing close to where or jobs are. right so this becomes a real um point of conflict in the environmental movement for example 
well, do we want those kind of cities? How do we get people out of their cars? But at the same time, what kind of cities do people want to live in? You can see the the kind of spinning around, and uh, and and the the kind of policymaking and solutioneering goes even higher than that. Well, okay, uh, you know, the president wants to pull out of the Paris Agreement for on climate. If we stay in it, how do we reduce our carbon emissions? How do we change the kind of electricity that people use? Can we get people to reduce the amount of power that they use? Maybe, yeah. But can we also have a, a, a grid that uses more renewable sources? Yes, that also is true. One of the most renewable sources of power is hydro, is dams. Those have other environmental consequences. And if there are droughts, the dams make less power. So can't really do that if there's more climate change. Like, believe me, this is not an easy problem. But I do think that that a shift in the way we think about this is coming, is happening as well. This is not a thing that like you and I can fix by recycling aluminum cans. That was. I'm glad you said that because my next question to you is going to be about our gadgets. Obviously, we write about a lot of tech and we all use a lot of tech. Mm-hmm. And not just physical tech, but we're now all using cloud services. And so mm-hmm. companies are building data centers all around the United States. Huge um, power-hungry data centers emitting heat. Power-hungry data centers. So I wonder about our own tech consumption and what that means for the environment. Like, not long ago, Apple announced that they were producing a MacBook Air that was made of fully recyclable aluminum, and or recycled aluminum, since aluminum is recyclable. And um, to me, it felt like, well, this isn't really any type of panacea for what's going on with carbon emissions or any, you know, any type of pollution that's being caused by the factories where these things are being produced. Or, it just seemed like such a, you know, it's like scooping out the, spo- the ocean with a spoon. I don't. Mm-hmm. Or the things that happen to all the gadgets um, that use the, the even rarer, the more sort of precious and more unusual uh, minerals exactly. and elements Cobalt in them. And then what happens and, when they get recycled right. at the other end. Let's talk about, right, batteries are obviously, right. um, you know, uh, very controversial. So, yeah, that's the thing that, it makes a lot of sense for us in this in this office, as you say, to be pretty conflicted about. It's strange too because one of the things that happens with every that has happened, I guess, at least since the industrial revolution, probably with every technological revolution before it, is that they all get pitched as things that will make it so that people don't have to work as hard, um, so that like will like society will still will make as mu- the same amount of stuff overall stuff that we make, but people will won't have to do as much to do it. But in fact, what ends up happening is we start making way more stuff. People work even harder because we have these new tools that can let us use this sort of same amount of raw material and turn it into even more energy and stuff. <laughs> Haven't they seen Koyana Skatsi? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I know. What's the matter with you guys? Um, uh, maybe they just need to sit through it maybe <laughs> three or four more times. If you only watch it six or seven times, Mike, you don't really get the full um, effect. <laughs> um <laughs> I, 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 so I, I, I think, right. Does that mean that the personal responsibility level of this is stop staring at your phone so much? I mean, maybe, but I think um, that the kinds of policy and societal changes that probably have to happen for entire cities and states and regions and countries and hemispheres to deal with this problem, the changes that have to happen on that scale also end up changing the way people use those gadgets and that stuff. How so? Um, well, they might get more expensive, for one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. What's going to happen when Apple starts charging what they say they're going to start charging for their stuff that you guys have been saying they're going to? Do as many people 
still use Apple products, or or does the do, do they now have the number of people who use Apple products and they have to do something else? Yeah, I think that's what it is. And, you know, I think there is there, you can also point to things like packaging, you mm-hmm. know, supply mm-hmm. chain, yep. uh, you know, advancements in supply chain technology and like systems stuff mm-hmm. that you know also. Um, different kinds of batteries, uh, more power efficient processors. Like I think all of those things are going to make small differences that in the aggregate may actually make uh, a, um, a measurable difference. There's also, I suppose, a chance that you could imagine um, the holding on to a device for longer that changed the or sort of software and firmware changes. Right now there's a real incentive to get us to buy a new phone every six or seven hours. I don't know. How long is it now? <laughs> <laughs> you guys tell you tell me. How do I need a new phone? I just yes, got a new phone. Do I need one? This podcast ends. You're going to need a new phone. <laughs> a new phone. Um, so you know, maybe that's a that, that's a thing we could change too. That, but you, you, what I what I don't want to um, I don't want to find myself in the depressing position of of advocating um, like just you know live more lightly on the land, everyone. Like <laughs> I don't because I work at Wired and I'm a yeah. science fiction nerd and I like my phone and you know all those things are are cool. Um, I I think that the uh, I think that where what our personal responsibility now is is to exert pressure on our elected representatives and to make different kinds of choices about what companies we buy our stuff from to let the people in power understand that they're not as in power as they think that that, that we are and if this becomes a priority for people as it should be we we can actually make that change and it's not the kind of it's not that personal responsibility narrative. We do have responsibility here. It is a personal responsibility. It's responsibility to, to ourselves, to our kids. Uh, but the kind of changes that we can make go well beyond. Maybe that's the way to think about it. It's not that we shouldn't be doing those things for ourselves. But the kind of changes we can make go beyond that. We have more power. We can make more change than that. And that, I think, is the should be the takeaway. Eh, maybe I should be writing it differently. You know, I mean, I, I, I sort of mm-hmm. haven't. I've, I've been kind of bummed out <laughs> um, covering this stuff. And and. You know, so I've been writing it um, in a in a science fiction cautionary way, and maybe that's not the right approach. Maybe the answer is like, here's what what would what what would my science fiction heroes be doing here? They'd be doing something else, maybe. What would they be doing? Well, I think probably if you reroute the warp drive through the main sensor array, you could probably just uh, <laughs> living lighter on the land. Um, <laughs> I I have a question. Um, since you you brought up sort of the futility of of policy, or per, you didn't put it in such terms, but I think just the opposite of that. But ask your question. Well, go ahead. well, our our current administration mm-hmm. is not the friendliest toward environmental action, <laughs> to put it lightly. Um, and I do think there is a sort of sense that you can bang on your drum all you want, and nothing really changes, mm-hmm. um, or at least it won't for a couple more years, and it hasn't for some years so far. Um, you look like you want to say something to that. No, I, I should, I, but that would just be interrupting you, and that'd be please, polite. please, please. Uh, I, I, I actually—it doesn't sound like it. I fervently and strongly believe in the power of political change. Uh, I—that's uh, uh, the way I was raised, um, and I—I I think it hasn't. I think the 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 dawning realization now is that is not that there is uncertainty about climate, and we don't really know what to do. The dawning uncertainty is actually. People do know what to do. And a very small but powerful kind of group of folks in charge of, th- of stuff has kept us from doing it for reasons that are essentially just greed. And once you know that, or at least once you internalize that, like, oh, no, we can fix that. 
that's super fixable. We just got to not have those people be in charge. And fortunately, we have a system that lets us do that. Uh, and I, I think I think the at least the sentiment of like the Green New Deal in the House that that's part of that sentiment of what are we what can we do at a policy level what what levers can we pull what can we change to make it so that the people who have a vested interest in not doing anything about climate change don't have as much power and don't get to stop these necessary fixes. I do believe that it's possible. I don't know if it will happen or not. I hope it will, but it is—it's definitely possible. And that's what we're—you know—that's what we, um, we citizens. This isn't me necessarily talking as a, a journalist, because, but just as a person who votes, you know, right. like that is a thing that um, that we're supposed to be able to do. And and that's part of this piece of personal responsibility is yeah. you know doing your part to make sure the people making these macro decisions are people who <laughs> you're comfortable with making those decisions. Yeah, right. that's, that's um, right. The the other thing I wanted to ask about though is um, besides the government, like is there a potential in big tech helping to unravel some of this? Definitely. Uh, another aspect of being a science fiction nerd is that I still hold out you know I hold out the hope that, like the batteries are going to get better. And the power grid is going to get better and that, you know, we're going to figure out that we're going to tech our way out of this a little bit. That's not the only solution and that's not the only thing we can do. But, yeah, we can we should be able to we should be able to do that. There's a there's a reason beyond just, oh, that's neat that we like electric cars around here. We have a sense, I think, editorially, we have a sense that that is a thing that will be good. A net good overall. We spend a lot of time writing about you know cycling and mm-hmm. and scooters mm-hmm. <laughs> and Elon Musk and Elon Musk. Yeah, Adam, what's your opinion on uh, moving to Mars? <sighs> <laughs> Why you want to troll me like that? <laughs> here's here's what I here's what I believe about that, and I say this as somebody who thinks that space is really cool, and thinks spaceships are really cool, and thinks that like. Martian colonies are really cool. I think that the way that gets phrased right now, especially when billionaires talk about it, is is the definition of a moral hazard. And I think that even if those guys can get a thousand people off of Earth, or ten thousand people off of Earth, or a hundred thousand people off of Earth, there are five billion of us, and there is no place better in the universe to live for human beings than this planet. And there never will be. No matter how good terraforming gets, no matter how fast our spaceships get, no matter what we find out there, this is where we evolved to live. It's a really good planet. It's really good. I mean, it's great. There's liquid water, the weather's pretty great, and we can breathe what the atmosphere is made out of, and it keeps us from getting hit by cosmic rays, and it shields the UV so we don't, you know, get cancer or sunburns too much. Like, it's a real good planet. We should take care of that. (laughs) Um, and I, I, I gotta say that that's a pretty new uh, radicalization of my science fiction politics. That's that's only in the last few years that I started to feel that strongly about that. I really, really have you know high hopes for like Generation Starships and Enterprises and you know Millennium Millennia, millennia Falcons. Mill- I don't know. <laughs> plural with that? I don't know. Um, but I I think that uh, now I sort of come down on the came Stanley Robinson science fiction side of things, which is this is this is where we live, this is what we gotta figure out what our technology and our science should be telling us how to how to fix, how to take care of. Love your mother. Mm-hmm. That's you, right. You broke it, you bought it. 
That's right. Um, well, look, we have to we have to wrap up soon. Is there one more question before we move on to recommendations? Well, we had two anonymous questions come in from fans <laughs> of the pod. Um, one was an anonymous question from someone who didn't want to share her name, but. She did a live TV spot last week, and while she was doing the live TV spot, she wore a blouse, and then later realized that blouse was really smelly afterwards. But this person doesn't smell after she works out. This is just what I've heard. (laughs) So she was wondering if stress sweat smells different from workout sweat, and we thought you, as a science writer, would know the answer to this. I once had... I've had terrible flop sweat only once in my life, like broadcast news scale flop sweat during an interview with a governor. It was really, really terrible. I have no idea what happened there. It was real. It was as embarrassing as you would as you would think it would be. Um, Jesse Ventura in front of Jesse interviewing Jesse Ventura in his office. Terrible. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I looked it up. Um, when you, not that I knew that that question was coming in advance, but hypothetically, had I known that that question was coming, in advance, I would have looked it up. Yeah, apparently it does. I didn't. I didn't know this. Um, sweat that we think of sweat typically comes from the apocrine glands. There's a bunch of different glands in your skin that give off sweat. The the um, bacteria that live on your skin kind of chew on that and give off parts of the smell. But there is something different. There's some different chemical. And I don't know from what I what I was reading. It, it I think it's that they haven't researchers haven't really identified what the component is. But in studies, certainly in non-human animals. And then sometimes in humans, they get different emotional responses. Um, so like there was one that I saw that people who had PTSD actually showed different emotional responses in, in the frontal cortex when they were doing an fMRI, when they exposed them to different odors. So there was like stress or fear sweat, non-stress or fear sweat, and then like fruit flavors. And yeah, it's quite a study. Very small. Like these are, these are small studies. Studying this kind of stuff is really hard because um, there, the, your sense of smell is... Um, so complicated and identifies so many different things some of them almost subconsciously and there aren't really names for all the compounds sometimes it's, it's really difficult this is i looked into some of this for the, my booze reporting because that's part of the whole thing of like you know the, the nose on wine and stuff and they don't really know even what all those chemical components are but apparently you can evoke a different emotional response and the, and and stress or fear as ev- as evinced in sweat does evoke a different emotional response in conspecifics and the, the people that you live with so it seems to it seems to work like in mice and not in humans maybe it's a little we don't really know but um but apparently interesting so second question from our totally anonymous friend of the pod uh is what's the best cure for hangover during the holiday season (sighs) i i i wish i had better news I really do, for a lot of different I really personal just, reasons. I threw this in there because I saw you wrote about this recently. I did, yeah. And I didn't read it, but now uh, you need to tell us. Um, it's it, Hangover is, a, is an extraordinarily understudied condition. Um, partially, I think, because of the sort of moralistic thing that like scientists can't get funding and don't want to be seen as studying. I think that if you could come up with a cure for hangovers, then that would be seen as encouraging drinking. Not that perhaps some the people who do... Um, indulge need any more encouragement <laughs> um but the best research on it now kind of says it looks like um a, an inflammatory like almost an immune response it's an inflammatory response so the um, cytokines the interleukin two, interferon things like that they get elevated if you have an infection are also elevated when you have a hangover and that sort of intuitively makes sense because they do feel a little bit like the flu sometimes 
Um, and if you have a, people who abuse alcohol who drink a lot of it, the kind of damage that you see that the liver does look like inflammatory damage, for example. So there's some intuitive connections. Like, yeah, okay, that sort of makes sense. So then the question is, well, what do you what do you do about that? And and the answer for a lot, very few, um, very, very few drugs or you know supplements, whatever, have actually been tested in a reliable way. Every so often, I get an email from some company that says, "We've got a hangover remedy. It's totally based in science." And I say, "Great, send me the science." And then they ghost me, or they, um, <laughs> or they'll send, or they'll send some studies that are sort of almost there, and then there's some studies in mice. And and like you wouldn't put up with that for a drug, right? But these are supplements, so the rules are super different. And I get all mad, and I walk around the office ranting about it, and people tell me to sit back down, and do my work instead of bothering about hangovers. But. Um, <laughs> Uh, but there, so there have been some, like there was some tests on, a, on like a really high power prescription strength um, anti-inflammatory uh, in Europe that seemed to work. And again, that's also, that has some intuitive power. People take Advil or, you know, ibuprofen or acetaminophen if they have a hangover. Those are anti-inflammatories. Some of the other, like, uh, some of the other over-the-counter substances or like supplements have some anti-inflammatory effect. Um, but, you know, acetaminophen also has... Uh, lip, potential consequences for the liver. If you take a lot of it, that mm-hmm. can potentially be dangerous. Ibuprofen also has some of those issues with, with the kidneys. You don't want, you just don't want to be taking a lot of that mm-hmm. stuff. You also don't want to have a lot of hangovers because they suck. Um, so it seems like the answer is really just don't drink. Don't drink too much. Here's my here's here's my little Hello, my, everyone. You're welcome. My little piece of advice mm-hmm. is have water between the drinks. So like, God, you're such a dad. I, <laughs> I'm I'm trying real hard to not to be like don't. Also, my hangovers have gotten worse, and that's because I'm old. So uh, what you're saying is that when I drink a glass of whiskey, I should definitely put a few drops of water in it. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. Yes, get the dropper, get the little eyedropper, mm-hmm. put two or three, but only of the kind of water that they use to actually make that whiskey. Yeah. Otherwise, right. you okay. totally ruin the right. flavor. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Thank you for that answer. I wish I could be more helpful. Um, so, as you know, at the end of at the end of every show, we do recommendations. We recommend a piece of culture, a book, a movie, a video game, a practice to our listeners. What is your recommendation for us? Uh, I have just received a book I've been waiting for for a long time called "Typeset in the Future" um, by a guy named Dave Addy. He's a um, he has a blog of the same name, and it's all about the um, typography and iconography of science fiction movies. Like the 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 words that are on the signs, or the, what the UI UX looks like. Yes. Uh, and it has it, he's he's written a bunch of stuff, and it it's all it's all about a uh, since the movie two thousand one. You you'll forever be on the lookout for um, Eurostyle bold condensed. Yeah. That's the type for <laughs> Eurostyle. I've learned it's an Italian yes. that you'll see in every uh, that it's the the for if you want to depict the future today that's the one that you use but it has all these other typefaces that you're like oh that one right that's in everything and it really uh just lavishes a lot of love on kind of specific like the the buttons that they designed the production designer designed for the control panels in alien are all this these weird icons that are just really beautiful and you kind of it's coffee table size book and you just fall into it and later that same day you have learned that James Doohan, who played Scotty, helped come up with the Klingon language for Star Trek: The Motion Picture. <laughs> like it's a day well spent. What is what is your favorite uh, user experience from a science fiction uh, film or television show? Oh, um, I always loved the wireframe CG targeting systems in Star Wars. Like when you when you see that like 
when when uh, when Luke first sits down at the gun station in the Millennium Falcon, and he turns on the you know clicks the switches, and the thing's got two grids sort of moving in space with little triangles representing the Tie Fighters. Yeah, like that's it's pretty hot. <laughs> Um, I highly recommend checking out uh, the original Cosmos by Carl Sagan when he takes you on the Starship of the Imagination. Yeah, it's a dust moat, right? Well, it's like he sits down at, at this at this console, and it's like it's like uh, it looks like a Simon, like the Simon mm-hmm. game with like little touch panels, and it has a crystal in the middle. Like the throttle is like a crystal that Duh. he like twists. It's it's amazing. They rarely ever show close-ups of it, you know, but it's. Like 1981, <laughs> so they're they're kind of impressed by it. So they occasionally will show his hands manipulating, and it's like that's how you control the starship of the imagination. I also like the um, the way that you drive a the way that you pilot a Gundam, you know, a mech, mm. a Japanese like giant robot. They sit in the chest, and it's in like this little pod, little spherical pod. But the whole outside of the pod is a, is screens, so they just see the outside like they're sitting as if they were sitting on top of it. And then they've got somehow levers. Somehow there's like a like lever controls that will let you control a humanoid robot, which I've never understood. But I love the I love the screens. You can't I tell think you guys need to get a room. <laughs> <laughs> the Gundam Pod. The Gundam Pod. There must be a hotel like that in Tokyo somewhere. <laughs> so my recommendation is a video game, and this is an old video game. This is one that's been out for a few years, maybe three or four years, and I downloaded it about six months ago with the recommendation of a friend. Played it like once and then put it away. And this last week, I was going through my phone and found it, decided I would try to play it, and like unlocked some weird little magical corner of my mind. And I blew maybe three or four hours this weekend playing this game. It's called Goat Simulator. No, that's not a game. I've seen that picture. <laughs> it's not what you're thinking of. <laughs> All right. It actually is a video game. It's so it's, it's called Goat Simulator, and it's exactly what you think it is. Uh, you are a goat. In the game, <laughs> and you run around and you headbutt things, and you lick things, and you jump over things, and you basically just cause mayhem. And it's that's awesome. <laughs> it's written with the Unreal Engine, uh, which is like a, an engine for three D physics in video games. And all of the physics in this game are like, if you if you like, you crank up everything on the Unreal Engine, things get like ridiculously unreal. People basically behave like rag dolls. A goat can. Um, ram somebody and send them flying like a hundred yards and also people sort of just flop around like rag dolls so as a goat you run around and you just destroy everything you can and cause all kinds of mayhem in this town that is the game wow that sounds like the greatest of all time it, hey. you know, <laughs> it might oh be oh boy it might be <laughs> anyway, that's my recommendation. It's like $5. It's available on iOS, Android, Windows, Mac. I think it's on Linux, too. Who knows? But anyway, uh, it's Is it go- available in VR? Uh, I don't know. Because that would be fun. It would be fun. It's kind of like it's... I think it would probably make you sick in VR. Because it's like a, you know, it's a 3D world that you kind of have to navigate around. Yeah. And, um, I'm just trying to milk it for all it's worth. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know that was bad. Oh, that's a sheep. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> Never mind. You got it. How do you I feel about the game? Animals. Meh. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. All right. I think we've, uh, heard, we've heard enough. We have heard enough. Hey. That was good. Lauren, what's yours? Oh, no. Ariel, please. I, I can't compete with that. <laughs> I, um, it's not a competition. It is, it is now. Um... 
well, I have I have two because my original recommendation is kind of boring. Um, but if you are feeling the stress sweats this time of year, I highly recommend uh, the To Do app, Actions by Moleskin. Mm-hmm. It is my favorite To Do app I've ever used. It is so beautiful. Uh, it's very sleek and uh, it's card based, so you can organize your to do lists by category and then swipe actions right off the screen mm. with this very lovely gesture. The Gadget Lab Slack blew up with talk of, of productivity oh, apps. We uh, have this lots week. of feelings. But yeah. that's yeah. a very boring recommendation. Um, so, my, my fun one is that. Um, What's not fun about <laughs> to do lists? <laughs> um, if you are interested in learning more about how to get a hangover from Adam Rogers. I highly recommend Adam's book proof, which is all about the uh, science of alcohol and full of fun facts that you can share with your friends while you're drinking. Um, We should also mention that you have a forthcoming book. Oh boy. (laughs) Well, maybe not. Yes. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Yes. I'm supposed to be typing as we speak uh, on it's on the, uh, the, the way that people uh, make and see colors mostly focusing on a, a particular um, a particular pigment titanium dioxide which is sort of ubiquitous in the built environment makes things opaque and white and bright and uh, it's in sort of all paints and a lot of cosmetics and um, it's a very interesting history of science story and chemistry and physics and all the stuff that I like uh, but you know I'm writing and so I'm in a big panic <laughs> what's it going to be called I, you know uh, right now uh, right now we've been calling it full spectrum but I, uh, I reserve the right to change that if I come up with something <laughs> better. Should be end end of the year, end of, end of next year, or beginning of twenty twenty. We'll have to have on. you back on then to recommend your book. <sighs> but read the first one. Read the first one before twenty yeah, twenty. Uh, Thank you. That'd be great. It's very good. Thank you. It's very good, and it's um, it's also a lot of fun to drink with you because you know so much about alcohol that like you always have a fun fact about whatever people are drinking. I'm so glad that you like. Drinking with me, I also like drinking with you. I fear that I can often be the most annoying person to drink with rather than the most fun person to drink with. It really depends on how much you've had to drink. <laughs> As is often the case with me, yes. Uh, my recommendation is a book called Swell by Liz Clark. It's about her post-college voyage sailing from Santa Barbara down to Southern California through Central America and uh, in the Pacific Islands. Um, I'm not through with the book yet, but I can tell you that I'm in it right now and I'm fully engrossed and I think it's wonderful. I have personally have never had a desire to sail around the world or even really sail for an extended period of time, but this definitely inspires or evokes a sense of wanderlust in anyone who's reading it. And she kind of moves in between present tense when she's actually sailing this 40 foot boat she named swell and um her past and how she ended up arriving at sailing this and you know she parks her boat in different spots and then she ends up surfing with her friends and that sort of just it's all very fluid and um that it's probably very on the nose to say it's fluid but it is and i i the way i described it to mike is the way she sort of moves in and out of time reminds me of like I don't know, just waves kind of coming in and out, and I really am enjoying it so far. So I recommend that. And also, you know how it ends, right? 
Like she survives. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, we do know how it ends because she has maintained a blog now about her adventures for at least 10 years. So Liz Clark is still around. So we know that. This isn't like a perfect storm type scenario. Knock on wood. Um, you know, because I'm sure she's still sailing and whatnot. But Great. yeah, this isn't like watching the perfect storm and having everyone know knowing the fate of the Andrea Gale. <laughs> wow, deep cut. <laughs> deep cuts, Lauren, good. Um, Adam, how can people find you on Twitter? I am at Jet Jocko on Twitter, J-E-T-J-O-C-K-O. Nice. See, as a fellow non-real namer handle person, I, I respect that. That's a good one. Um, I am at Snackfight. I'm at Part Esoteric. I'm at Lauren Good with an E, which really makes me feel boring now. <laughs> That's okay. Also, it was not me who was sweating. I just want to make that clear in case I wondered. <laughs> it was a, an anonymous person. It was the goat. <laughs> it was the goat. But everybody's going to be imagining what it must smell like in the podcast studio. I mean, it was, you know, I heard it was not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and of course, you can reach all of us at Gadget Lab. <laughs> So thanks for listening. We'll be back, I think, with our last show of the year next week. Is that right? Uh, it may be, but it will certainly be our last show with our amazing audio engineer, Pia. So we'll have to give her a special shout out. Yes. Thank you again for uh, engineering us this week, Pia. Yes. We hope we made you laugh. We'll see you next week. I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you. And how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.